Very good morning to you all. Towards the end of last year, we began a series of studies in John's Gospel, and it's high time that we got back to it. John Wimber's advice to, uh, to every pastor was always to study the whole Bible, but live in the Gospels. That's where we're supposed to live, because they're the things that keep us closest to Jesus in terms of our Bible reading. And contrary to appearances, it's not just Jesus' death and resurrection that matters to the Christian. It's actually his life and teaching as well. As we learnt in Hebrews, he is the living demonstration of what God is like. What, what God is like. And um, his, his, his teaching is the, the perfect explanation, and his life the perfect example of what God's plan for every human being is. As Dr. Shively said in her introduction to that first series, John's Gospel presents Jesus as the light shining in the darkness in which we find ourselves. He alone displays to mortal sight the truth about three things. The world we live in, the God who made and sustained it, and ourselves as we try to find our place within it. So first and foremost, we are people of the gospel. As they say in The Wire, that how we do. We ended that first series at the end of chapter 5, and today you won't be surprised to learn, I want to pick up again at chapter 6, verse 1. If you have a Bible with you, please turn there right away. And today's passage is, is all going to lead towards the first of um, seven famous I am statements in this gospel. And that is, I am the bread of life. Uh, the others, in case you want to know, are I am the light of the world, I'm the door of the sheepfold, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the resurrection and the life, I'm the true vine, and I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we'll come to those in due course. <clears throat> Not today. It's plain to see <coughs> from these seven I am statements just how central Jesus actually makes himself to his teaching. So unlike other religious teachers, he's not pointing to someone else. He's not pointing to a system of rules or uh, a belief system or a saving doctrine or philosophy. He is not outlining a self-help program or a magical mechanism. He's not setting up a sacrificial system whereby we can get God on our side. No, he's simply pointing to himself and saying in a nutshell, if you want to get to heaven, you're going to have to come through me. Our passage covers two extraordinary events and one even more extraordinary statement. Let's read together John 6, and we're going to do from verse 1 right through to 35. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not be enough. That's 200 days wages, by the way. Would not buy enough bread for each one of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. 
Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they'd eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into the boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they'd rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and Jesus had not entered into the boat with his disciples, but the disciples had gone away alone. And other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they'd eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus wasn't there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you're not seeking me because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The two miracles in this passage are very well known, not least because, unlike most of the stories John chooses to tell us, they're also recorded in the three other Gospels, which are known as the Synoptic Gospels, which means they're three Gospels that see things the same way. But this bread of life teaching appears in John alone. Matthew, Mark, and Luke had got their books out many years before John. So he's now deliberately offering offering what is really no more than a supplementary account to a known series of facts. He doesn't bother to repeat what people already know. So, for example, although the Last Supper is clearly identifiable in all four, John barely mentions the centerpiece of all the other three, which is the institution of communion. Instead, he gives us a load of detail about what Jesus taught on that occasion, including the washing of the disciples' feet, and that appears in John alone. What John offers is not just 
the unique memories of the disciple Jesus loved, as he calls himself. But what he's come to regard as vital missing details about Jesus' life and teaching in the other Gospels. So it seems to me most likely that in retelling these two well-known miracles, he particularly wants us to see them as the context for the bread of life teaching, which he alone gives us. For the modern-day disciple of Jesus, whatever else you get out of this, this passage, for me, makes three very simple but vitally important points. One, bring to Jesus the little you have, and he will do something incredible with it. Number two, go where you know Jesus can be found, and he'll meet you halfway. Number three, seek Jesus for what he actually offers you, not for what you want him to do for you. Number one, Jesus can do a great deal with a very little. As the chapter opens, we find him crossing the Sea of Galilee away from his familiar stamping ground around Capernaum. Now, John doesn't tell us so, but in Matthew 14, we learnt that he went across by boat, whereas the following crowns had to schlep all the way around on foot. I always find it interesting to note that to the other writers, uh, when Jesus gets into a boat, it's a boat. But to John the fisherman, it's always the boat. Why? Probably because it was the same boat, very likely the one owned by his own family business. So I'm just guessing, a nice little personal detail, but it would explain why there was always a boat available whenever Jesus needed one. As to the context of this chapter... I don't really think it has one, except the developing story of Jesus revealing who he is more and more, and the growing antagonism of the authorities, until his day finally comes. The um, after this that you spotted at the beginning of verse 1, that after this there, uh, simply means that this is a separate later event in a, a developing sequence. It doesn't really mean it links to the, to the bit before. The whole year has actually passed between the first Passover mentioned in chapter 2 and the one um, that we find is at hand at verse 4 of this passage. And another year is going to pass before the final Passover mentioned in chapter 3. So it's just a string of events fitting in with the other Gospels. Nevertheless, this mention of Passover in verse 4 is doing much more than just fixing a point in time. The word then in verse 5 is really a therefore. And when we see a therefore in Scripture, we have to look and see what it's there for. Yeah, very good. John points out specifically what happens in the three Passovers in his Gospel, in Jesus' public ministry. In the first, he cleansed the temple and chucked out all the animals and the money changers. In the last, he's actually going to become the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So in the first, the whole physical system of Passover sacrifice was very publicly disrupted and overturned with the words, my house should be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. In the last, the entire spiritual significance of Passover was overturned. Darkness covered the earth. The veil of the temple was split from top to bottom. Dead people rose up from the graves and all that stuff. So what about this second Passover? Here the significance is less immediately obvious. The Moffat commentary, which is the only one of the four I read that picks up on the Passover theme at all, suggests that Jesus is here changing the very institution of Passover 
into something that looks well in something that looks very like at least a step towards the institution of what we call holy communion be that as it may john must have meant something by linking these events to the passover and for my money we're likely to miss the point if we don't read on until verse 35 as we did this morning Passover was the festival when Israel remembered their release from slavery by the last curse of Egypt, if you remember, when the, uh, the firstborn of man and beast was struck down and died in the middle of the night, except for those families that had eaten the Passover lamb with unleavened bread and smeared the blood of the lamb on their doorposts to mark them as, as God's people. Everything that follows in this chapter has to be read in a Passover context. It might be that Peter, in verses 5 and 7, was really wondering if they were going to have an open-air Passover feast for 5,000 people. If so, the maths is extremely challenging. 200 days' pay wouldn't be enough to give them each just a symbolic bite, like when we take communion, a little tiny little thing. And by the way, the term bread might equally easily mean food. The two terms are pretty nearly interchangeable in the Greek as they once were in English. And what Philip is saying, 200 denarii wouldn't be enough. He's simply saying, we can't afford it, Lord. We can't afford it. But those who follow Jesus are automatically accepted as his people, and he wants to feed them. Much more than just a token meal like communion. Jesus has a point to make, himself, make about himself. And it requires that no one is going to leave that place empty or hungry. As soon as Andrew turns up with a few loaves and fishes, he just makes them all sit down and sets about feeding them. First to last, verse 11, as much as they want. With 12 basketfuls left over. Many times more than they had to start with. The Passover of Jesus feeds people, as the Welsh like to sing in their rugby matches, till they want no more, want no more, feed me till I want no. So a tiny human contribution. I I thought you were all going to pick it up and and sing with me, but but nothing happened. So there's not enough Welsh people in the room. Any Welsh people, you? Well, there you are. You You could have joined in there. Want no more. Anyway. Anyway, he fed them them until they wanted no more. A tiny contribution in the hands of God becomes more than sufficient to all who come, however many they are and however undeserving they are. There's all kinds of lessons for the Christian to learn from this, of course. Notably the one I mentioned at the beginning, that Jesus can do astonishing things with just the tiny little offerings that we make. But perhaps even more important is the lesson that's here for the non-Christian or the pre-Christian. And that is that Jesus welcomes every one of us as a friend. However confused our motives are, however confusing we find him to be. Whether we come to him for the first time as a penitent sinner or for the umpteenth time to re-offer our lives to him in thanks and worship, all we have to offer is a few loaves and fishes as inadequate to the task of salvation as a smear of blood on the doorpost. Offer it to Jesus and watch him do something wonderful with it. I want to come back later to verses 14 and 15. Let's move on to this second miracle, walking on the water 
in verses 16 to 21. So this is part two. Seek Jesus where you know he can be found. In verse 15, Jesus had gone off on his own. Now night has fallen, he still hasn't come back. The remaining crowd are presumably just bedding down for night as best they can on the grass in the open air. So the disciples are faced with the question, are they going to just wait with the crowd and see if Jesus comes back? Or are they going to go where they know he'll turn up sooner or later? Now I'm not sure what the arrangements in Capernaum actually were, but it's clearly a place that Jesus came back and back and back to. Perhaps there was a benefactor there with a large house who could put them all up when they came to town. might even be that in accordance with ancient tradition, Simon Peter himself had a home there, or his main home perhaps. In any case, they seem to have had no doubt that Jesus is going to pitch up at Capernaum sooner or later, so that's where they go. I wonder if some of them were actually a little miffed at Jesus for just storming off on his own when they came to make him king. It had been a spectacular miracle. Everything seemed to be going so well. His popularity was at a peak. But anyway, (coughs) grumpy or not, down to the shore with them and all aboard for Capernaum, where they expected to find Jesus in a day or two. What they weren't expecting, four miles out from the land, as the waves rise, is to be overtaken by Jesus himself, coming to them walking on the water. It's probably an understatement in verse 19 to say that they were afraid. Other accounts say they took him for a spirit, in other words, a ghost or a demon. But And this is quite typical of the power that John ascribes to the word of God. Jesus only has to say, don't worry, chaps, it's only me. And they're immediately happy to help him into the boat. And here's the thing that I love most about John's unique recollection of that night. As far as he's concerned, the second Jesus got into the boat, they found themselves home and dry on the shore that they were trying to get to. For me, the lesson is when Jesus seems to have disappeared and you don't know where he's gone, don't hang around with the crowd in the place where he left you. Go to a place you know he always shows up and wait there. I'm hoping for many of you, the place that springs to mind is your church or your home group, maybe pub church or whatever, As we head for the place where we know we'll find him, oftentimes he'll meet us on the way before we even get there. As with the multiplication of the food, there is a human step to take before God's power is released. That's partly why we ask you to come to the front to receive prayer on a Sunday. In Galatians 3, Paul mocks those who tries to finish in the flesh what was begun in the spirit. These two stories speak of the opposite dynamic, when a human element is offered to God and then it gets taken somewhere completely wonderful, off the scale marvellous, by the work of the Holy Spirit. Now obviously we all need to learn to avoid places where we're pretty sure we won't meet Jesus. But more than that, let's become people who instinctively go where we know he can be found. Do you ever wonder why it's so hard to get to home group? why it's so hard to get to church on time on a Sunday. The devil knows you're going to meet Jesus here. Number three, seek Jesus for what he's offering you, not for what you want from him. The great Bible teacher William Temple refers to the people's mistake in verses 14 and 15 as natural religion. That's where we try to use God for our own purposes. 
They quickly identify him as the very prophet that Moses spoke of. Well, so far, so good. But then their own inclinations and understanding take over. If we're the ones to make him, uh, make him into a king, then surely when his kingdom's all powerful and stuff, we're going to be really favoured. Well, for many years, I found Jesus' response completely mystifying. Didn't he want to be king of kings and lord of lords? Isn't that what he came for? Well, the answer is, of course, not like that. There's nothing about submission to God in these people. The Jesus they can see doing miracles fits nicely into a picture they can imagine of all material comforts coming to them, perhaps to the exclusion of others. In fact, it's an attitude absolutely rooted in the demonic mammon system of the world, which Jesus came to uproot and destroy. Jesus had already dealt with the issue of worldly power and the temptation in the desert when the devil offered him all the kingdoms of the earth if he just bowed down once and worship him. And the answer was, as we used to say back in the day, uh, no. Or as you youngsters tend to say, I'm all right, thanks. One of my favorite parts of the whole Old Testament is the encounter between Joshua and the angel of the Lord in Joshua 5. Do you all remember this? This too happens at Passover time, by the way, just before the Battle of Jericho, when the Israelites have had their first taste of the fruit of the promised land and the manna has stopped coming from heaven for them to eat. Joshua is probably away up in the hills praying, as was his wont. But he looks up and he sees a warrior, fully armed, with his sword drawn. So, being a man who's never one to back away from a scrap, he goes over and says, who are you? Are you for us or against us? Subtext, if you're against us, bring it on. And the angel says, are you for us or against us? The angel answers, no. And I... Always imagine a sort of dramatic pause while Joshua thinks, so you're not for us and you're not against us. But then he continues, but as the captain of the Lord's hosts, I've come. Then Joshua falls on his face and worships. The angel of the Lord is, in my view, a Christophany, an appearing of Jesus before his birth, as eternity invades the space-time continuum. Clearly, Joshua acts as if it is. And this is a wonderful illustration of the way Jesus always was, is, and ever shall be. People want to know, is he for us or is he against us? And his answer was and is and ever shall be, no. People have always asked Jesus the wrong question. We give him binary choices because that's all our little minds can comprehend. And he answers us, actually, guys, it's not like that at all. In our last section, verses 22 to 35, precisely this type of interaction is playing out before us once again. 22 to 24 amply describe the confusion, the doubt, the wonder of the crowd. They saw the great miracle. They got rebuffed for that perfectly natural reaction. And they watched him walk away. When they realize he's not coming back, they chase him across the water. When they catch up with him, they want to get back in his good books again. Rabbi, when did you get here? For which read, how did you get past us? We were watching all night. But Jesus, as always, cuts straight to the chase. You don't get the meaning of the miracles. They're supposed to be signs of who I am and my coming kingdom. All you care about is getting a full belly. Well, I care about that too, but don't you see, physical food goes into your system and gets burned up. The food that really matters 
is the spiritual food which gives you eternal life. Work for that food, not the other kind. The signs, did you but see it, point you to the Son of Man who alone can give you the only kind of food that matters in eternity. Work for that food. Work, they say. Verse 28, we're not afraid of work. You didn't want us to make you king. What can we do for you to get on the right side of God? That sounds an awful lot like salvation by works, doesn't it? And Jesus' reply in return sounds very like a comment by St. Paul in Ephesians 2 verse 8. By grace are you saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works that no one can boast. Jesus' version is, is shorter and pithier and in its context much more confrontational, but it's saying the same thing. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. It's not what they were expecting at all. It was not what they wanted. If they, you could just hear what they had to do, they could mentally price up the job and see if they wanted it or not. That would leave them in control. But if all we can do is believe in, which means committing ourselves to a person, well, that leaves the cost uh, uncomfortably open-ended, doesn't it? It leaves that person in control, not us. That is the biggest stumbling block for those who refuse to come to Christ. When I was a student, people often used to say to me, ah, oh, Christianity, that's just a crutch. The, the able-bodied don't need it. They didn't like the sound of having to lean on Jesus for support. They hadn't yet come to the breaking point in their lives when you realize that you're not able-bodied after all. That was just the morphine-induced hallucination, the dream of the long-term invalid. But when something happens that wakes you up from that dream, when the eternal reality impinges on our time-torn lives, we realize that, yes, we do need a crutch to lean on. Otherwise, we'll spend the rest of our days lying helpless, trying to get back into the dream. Verses 30 and 31 show that they just don't get it. They're still bargaining with Jesus, still pricing up the job. Go on then, governor, make it worth our while. Are you going to feed us every day like Moses did to our ancestors in the desert? Well, it's an understandable question from the working poor in that society. Most of them were living hand to mouth, zero hours contracts, families to feed, and no minimum wage. When they respond to the great miracle they've seen by asking for the same thing every day, that's speaking out of the foremost worry of their hearts and the deepest need of their bodies. And there was, too, a strong rabbinic tradition at the time that when the Messiah came, he would feed the people like Moses fed the Israelites in the desert. Jesus just had to say yes to this, and they would have followed him to the ends of the earth. But he doesn't want followers who are in it for material blessing. And he wants to feed his people spiritually before he feeds them physically. Because what's the point of looking after the mortal body if the soul dies? As Jesus himself said in Matthew 16, 26, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Once again, Jesus tries to wrestle them away from their earthbound thinking. It's not the bread that's important. It's not Moses that's important even. Look to God who is the real giver. Then you can receive the spiritual food that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. 
but our thinking is still focused in on the narrow issues of the physical world. So they still look to the man they see before them to provide the kind of bread that they can see and feel and touch and taste. That's not stupidity. It's just earthbound thinking. They're exactly the same as the modern scientist who says the spiritual doesn't exist because I can't measure it with physical instruments. But Jesus, fully man and fully God, came to bring a new and startling interface between the spirit world and the physical world. And it's encapsulated with all its wonders and challenges in the verse with which we end. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Why don't you stand and I'll pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we uh, thank you for this opportunity to take our minds off our our physical needs, our daily bread needs in that sense. and Try and connect with you in the place of our spiritual hunger and thirst, our place of need. As we gather before you to invite your Holy Spirit to touch us, Lord, would you, would you heal our bodies and, um, and minds, but would you feed our souls as well? Would you meet with each one of us and give us the, the bread that gives us eternal life? So come, Holy Spirit. Come and move among your people. Those who know you well, those who know you hardly at all, those who are trying to find out who you are. We gather before you as a hungry crowd and we've got our own misconceptions of who you are. Our understanding is shallow, but we know the depths of your love and we respond to that with our hearts. So we come to make a connection with you this morning.